0: My name's Dr. Donna Houston. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Geography and Planning at Macquarie University. If you walk down a narrow laneway in the vicinity of Martin Place and George Street in the Sydney CBD, you will encounter a canopy of 120 empty bird cages suspended between the towering skyscrapers. The installation is titled Forgotten Songs. It is designed by the artist Michael Thomas Hill. Originally for a Laneway Arts Festival, it is now a permanent installation in Angel Place, commissioned by the City of Sydney. The installation explores how Sydney's fauna has evolved and adapted to coexist with increased urbanisation, inviting contemplation of the city's past, its underlying landscape and the sustainability issues associated with increased urban development. I last encountered forgotten songs a few months ago during lunchtime in the CBD. Well-dressed office workers glided under the empty cages without so much as a glance upward. Nor did they glance downward to the names of the absent birds etched into the pavement eastern whipbird, fantail cuckoo, leaden flycatcher, variegated fairy wren, powerful owl, white-throated nightjar, tawny frogmouth, and so on. The daytime bird songs were barely audible over the ambient city noise. To me it seemed incredibly melancholic how the songs of the absent birds called out to a landscape no longer able to answer them. Needless to say, there is something profoundly uncanny and unsettling about forgotten songs. It is an allegory to ecological displacement caused by urban development. Many of the birds can still be encountered in the margins and wild pockets of the city that are still capable of supporting them. While there is an element of hope and whimsy to the project, the echo of the recorded bird song bouncing off the brick and concrete in an endless loop evokes a deeper sense of derangement characteristic of the urban Anthropocene. Thinking about how the space of loss and disappearance is continually performed by the empty bird cages prompts me to think more critically about the question, what has been done and thought about extinction in cities?
1: That was Donna Houston's powerful and unnerving opening to her 2018 talk to celebrate the centenary of the School of Architecture, Design and Planning here at the University of Sydney. This is the final episode in our five part centenary podcast series. And we're talking about a big topic today. The connections between extinction, urban development and time. I start by asking Donna to set the scene by explaining ecological time and why it's important for understanding the way we plan, design and build cities.
0: I'm not a biologist, (laughs) so I just want to clarify that. But for me, ecological time reflects the millennia. That it takes for ecosystems to form, for biodiversity to flourish. So, if we look at uh, the idea of extinction, for example, extinction is natural. It's part of our, it's part of the cycle of life and and death on our planet. It happens at a, a background rate. So, ecological time is that kind of movement of generations of species and interconnections. And stories, I guess, as well over those longer scale periods of time.
1: And it's not the time we commonly use in cities?
0: No, in cities we tend to use uh, incremental uh, time, or we might even call political time. So the kind of time that I've been thinking about in, in that regard is the the cycle of planning and implementation. So often we'll make a plan, uh, it'll have a three to five year cycle, um, we'll implement it, we'll review it. And those Cycles of governance are not really in sync with larger or or they don't even really attempt to speak. Um, I'm not saying that we need to plan for <laughs> millennia. Um, so an extra strategic
1: yeah. plan doesn't need to Do- be seven millennia? <laughs> no,
0: it doesn't. Um, but it, it should be able to recognise or, or speak to that reality that also exists in cities a little better. One example that comes out of Perth, I think, which is interesting is the green growth strategy that was developed over there. So it was the Perth and Peel green growth plan for 3.5 million people. So strategic plans are designed to be forward thinking, but they're still only thinking... Thirty years ahead, or fifty years ahead, They're still, if you're lucky. If we're lucky, and there were some interesting elements of that because they they did attempt to uh, develop uh, strategic environmental assessments for the whole city. So, uh, what was interesting about those plans was it was attempting to limit environmental destruction and sprawl, according to the the, uh, the planning documents, but also implemented across the the metropolitan. Scale, But it was just been put on hold, uh, pending review, a little bit earlier um, this year because environmentalists weren't happy. Because despite it limiting uh, environmental destruction, um, it still locked in clearing of nearly 40,000 hectares of habitat, including 50% of the remaining Carnaby Cockatoo habitat. And also uh, the uh, UDIA um, was supportive of the review because I think they felt that... uh, Any gesture towards protection was locking up land from development as well. So now it's been suspended. And so, again, the problem of time is, well, what's going to happen to cockatoos in the time that it's going to take everybody to come back to the table and to to sort all this stuff out? So, again, it's that kind of slow kind of death by a thousand cuts Mm. that's just going on under the surface all the time. So, you know, time is such an important and critical factor when you're looking at witnessing mm-hmm. um, extinction,
1: and I guess time and event. Because if you don't clear it now, you mightn't clear it next time. Yeah. But it only takes one clearance event yeah. to get rid of that all of that ecological time. Yeah,
0: and exactly. And I think that's something that we just don't. That planning systems in particular are not responsive to. So, the other story in Perth is around the Row 8 highway extension. Uh, that was, uh, the plan was to go through the uh, Bellier wetland, which is a very critical conservation area in Perth. And again, it's one of the last remaining wetland areas. It was very unpopular publicly unpopular decision to do so. And I believe the McGowan government has said that they won't do it. But on the eve of halting the development, a, a large swath was cut through to make way for the road and uh, I was in Perth just last weekend and there was a, a a big public event to replant some of that so I guess there's a there's hope in the the idea of this kind of reparative urbanism as well that you know um, communities of, of people getting together to to try and replant or you know sort of remediate as well.
1: I mean is that important for understanding our cities is that part of the solution to what planners need to do is to better understand the rhythms and the temporalities of l- literally how our cities function
0: yeah so i think i've mentioned before that uh, development tends to be prioritized and so plans that might have been in place for for some time can come to fruition all of a sudden, and it seems like, oh, they're knocking down this critical habitat. But it's just a little bit out of sync with perhaps what the the ecological temporalities of the city are. So talking about that idea that we're talking about remnant ecosystems that that took a long time to form and that their their biodiversity is is unique and that it's hard to protect them under current schema that wants to sort of isolate them off as being particular. Kinds of places or um, wants to sort of move a a corridor or connectivity in a a particular part of the city and Give way to another part of the city for for more human centric development. So I think that's one of the the key things is that I guess planners think or planning systems need to be more attuned to the ecological realities of cities. That that there are actually very specific sites that if if they get destroyed, bringing species or black cockatoos in the case of Perth closer to the the thresholds of extinction. In terms of rhythms, I think the idea again is that, you know, we we tend to think about cities as having a a very human rhythm. Um, So everyday life is around how we get around the city and what we're doing rather than um, the ecological rhythms of the city. But when people talk about remembering the flocks of black cockatoos, they're also talking about other cycles. And I think that this is really important, to planning resilient and sustainable cities so moving into the future of Perth needs to really look after its, and in fact perhaps even revitalise ecosystems that it depends on because of climate change and uh, it's going to get hotter and less resilient so I think it's important to, to, to think about those two things in more ecological terms.
1: We're talking to Dr. Donna Houston about extinction, climate change, urban development and our urban planning futures. Donna says we need to be more attuned to the ecological realities, timelines, rhythms and cycles of our cities. In the next part of our discussion we look to the future and what we can do as urbanists to better plan for multi-species cities. And a part of the answer might be decentering the human from our discussion of cities and the aim of urban planning more broadly. You've used the term anthropocentric a few times which is an idea of putting the human at the centre of the analysis and I imagine that you think our planning systems are a bit anthropocentric what would we do to make them to take the human out of the uh, as the central node of the planning system?
0: Yeah, um, look, I think that's a that's a really difficult question uh, for planners because you know what do we do then? Do we bring black cockatoos to the planning table. (laughs) Are they going to write submissions? Um, So I think there's a a question of thinking about who speaks for the non-human within in planning context. That is important. I think planning systems have to do a better job of uh, deliberating for non-humans as well as humans. So for me in part, I think that requires a bit of a decoupling of what we might see a a core set of planning interests around what what the city ought to be or what the future of the city is um, away from these logics of growth and these logics of development and uh, logics of particular types of urban legacy that we've inherited from the 19th and 20th century that see development as largely overcoming the limitations of nature and into a more reparative form of urbanism where that perhaps the goals might be a little bit different. So maybe uh, looking at degrowth a little bit more seriously, but also looking at restoration economies as well. So there are big projects underway in the world. So um, Tell us
1: about some of those because I just get the sense that sounds like a very logical project, but the barriers to achieving it are fairly... It seems like we're yeah. pushing the growth agenda more now than we ever have, I think, and, so, yeah. Yeah. and so yeah, I think we need good examples from around okay. the world. To-
0: um, yeah, so a really good example is uh, the creation of Fresh Kills Park in New York. So that is the the largest park in a hundred years to be created on top of landfill on Staten Island. And so I think that idea of actually reclaiming and working with novel, I guess, ecologies of cities, not necessarily having this desire to return to a pristine ecosystem that may or may not have existed. So I think that's a, a really good example. But even here in Sydney, projects to make the Cooks or Parramatta River swimmable again, so cleaning up water and, you know, these are long-term projects are not going to happen overnight. They may It may take several decades or more to to actually achieve. But the knock-on effects from sort of turning things around towards a reparative and restoration economy I think will have great benefits for cities in the future and i family believe that the cities who are doing this stuff are going to be better off in yeah in the not too distant future as well
1: sounds like there's another temporal dimension there that it's not looking to the past to some sort of essentialized notion of what the urban or the environment or nature was like but looking to the future to say what sort of city do we want to live in what sort of city is a, a socially and environmentally just city
0: That's right. And I think that also a a cosmo-ecological city as well. So in New Zealand, a river... I can't remember the name of it now, (laughs) has just been granted legal personhood. So is the Ganja uh, River in India. So, And that that means that
1: people can literally use it to legally put forward a set of rights for that river. That's
0: right. And I think that that has quite enormous implications for urban rivers and catchments if they're given uh, personhoods not quite the same as human rights, but it's still hard to pollute and to do certain things. So it does change the the regulatory landscape. and it also draws in, I guess alternative politics and alternative perspectives. So a lot of this work comes out of work that has happened in in South America and um in Ecuador in particular, the the rights of nature and pachamama and and it draws in indigenous and other cosmo, I was going to ask you yeah, about indigenous methodologies. Yeah. It, it
1: seemed that seems to be yeah. perhaps, a productive yeah. way forward here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that kind of cosmos or cosmopolitical in this sense is really taken from philosophy that trying to open up our possibilities to the world and also be responsible to the world in different ways. So I think there's a lot of connections or possibilities here in Australia to really work with urban country and to bring indigenous planning to the fore as well. So there are other models out there so mm. and I think that we should be taking them a lot more seriously.
1: Yeah. I was following the Twitter handle of a young indigenous academic who was at a Bruno Latour talk and he was talking about the sentient nature mm. of the world. Yeah. And she was sitting there in and she's writing in a tweet, just waiting for him to say, and this is all based on indigenous methodologies, <laughs> but he never quite got there. And <laughs> so, but I think there is something kind of Special in that, and we've yeah. both just been actually in New Zealand where yeah. we were probably in the same room. Where we were hearing about the yeah. river being yeah. given personhood, yeah. And I think that is a powerful way of rethinking some of these because the temporal time frames and everything are already built into those methodologies. The long time it, exactly,
0: frames. yeah, the longer view, and also the responsibility. So, cosmo ecological is also to. Uh, put oneself into obligation or or responsibility in a way that, we don't as Western Eurocentric or anthropocentric practices don't don't do so yeah so it's about not really trying to yeah sort of grant rights but to, to understand that the ecological and and cultural processes that are entangled within our relations are you know really important to our survival and in fact we won't really survive if we don't attend to them so yeah
1: Donna thanks for joining us today
0: Great. Thank you, Dallas.
1: (laughs) You've been listening to a special five-part series to celebrate the centenary of the School of Architecture, Design and Planning. You can listen back to all the episodes on Apple Podcasts. All the links are on our website at cityroadpod.org. We ended this series with Donna talking about the role of indigenous methodologies in architecture, design, and planning. And I just want to flag a very exciting City Road podcast project that we're literally about to kick off. The School of Architecture, Design, and Planning kindly gave us a little pot of money to produce this podcast series. Miles Herbert, the executive producer of City Road, and I decided that we'd put this cash to good use. And we'd hire someone to produce a five-part podcast series on decolonizing the built environment, which I must say has been a pretty huge gap in the City Road offering. So we're happy to announce that Joel Sherwood Spring and Genevieve Murray from Future Method will be producing and hosting the new City Road Decolonizing the Built Environment Professions and Practice series. So keep an ear out for that. Anyway, I'm Dallas Rogers and that's all from me. See you next time.